from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. It blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree. This week on our show, Ross Gay shares a poem featuring the opposite of social distancing under a fig tree in Philadelphia. And Bloomington neighbors share tips on raising figs here in the Midwest. Producer Violet Barron interviews a butcher in a grocery store at the start of the pandemic. And Harvest Public Media has a story about young farmers and student loan debt. All that and more just ahead, so stay with us. is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Our first story comes from producer Violet Barron. In partnership with Indiana University's Center for Rural Engagement, we're bringing you a few of the stories from the series Growing in Place from the summer of 2020. The series shares the stories of food workers and community leaders who have kept people fed in an unprecedented time. This piece is an interview with Juan Ruffin, who works as a butcher at a grocery store in Indianapolis. I used to be... The, the type of person that people fought for. And so it was hard for me to step out there. It was hard for me to say anything. So people stepped, people stood up for me. And as I got older and I started having children, I, I tell my children all the, all the time, do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So in order for me to say that, I have to live that. My name is Juan Ruffin, and I am a butcher at Kroger's for 23 years. I also am a union steward and an executive board member. To get to your plate, someone's got to raise the meat, and someone's got to cut that meat and package it up for you. Juan's worked at Kroger in Indianapolis for 23 years, and he's been a union member that whole time. As a butcher, his job is specialized. It takes skill and strength to lift big pieces of meat and cut them for customers. We talked by phone after he finished a shift about work and about this wild summer. A typical day for Juan falls into a routine, stocking, storing meat, and cutting it for orders. But when COVID hit, that changed a lot. As a grocery store employee, Juan is considered an essential worker. That means he never sheltered in place. He was always expected to keep on working throughout the outbreak. And he saw a lot of things in those shutdown days. 
there were several customers that came to the grocery store every day because there was literally nothing else to do. And a lot of them came in without masks on. And a lot of times they were not purchasing anything. It was just something to do, just mm -hmm. to get out. It was really exhausting because everybody, grocery shops, everybody has to eat. Mm -hmm. So if that's all they could do, that's all they were doing. And so we were busy, I mean, extremely, like I've never seen us uh, as busy that much in, uh, every day. He says that's calmed down now that Indiana is opening up again, but he's still concerned, especially since the virus is far from under control just yet. Like when cases first started to rise in Indy, Kroger announced it would limit stores to half capacity. Half capacity is what we are on an extremely busy day. So it wasn't really eliminating exposure. It was just meeting the demands of or, or a PR stunt, actually, yeah. because if you're saying we're limiting uh, a store to half capacity and every Kroger that I've ever worked at has never been at half capacity, even at their busiest uh, moments, then you're really just saying words because you're not you're not limiting anything. What what are you doing? What are you doing for us? You're not you're not making any safer for anybody because we never operated at capacity. No one there's never ever fifteen hundred people in a Kroger for any reason. It's not a concert hall, it's a grocery store. <laughs> yeah. So saying you're limiting capacity is not doing anything safety wise. He says at the core there's a discrepancy between what Kroger is saying and what they're actually doing. That was my whole issue when, uh, what has it been, uh, maybe a month now that that we were, they changed our, uh, our dress code to make masks a part of our um, uniform, so they were required for us to wear them, but they never required customers mm. to wear them. Uh, when it first, when it first got really bad, that was one of my concerns was, you know, these customers are coming in here every day, exposing us every day, and you're not requiring them to wear masks. And in the earliest days of the pandemic, when Indiana was fully shut down in March and April, Juan says there were no official protocols in place for limiting exposure. He remembers a day when one of his coworkers tested positive for COVID, and no one was sure what to do aside from calling the health department. The store shut down for a few hours, but there weren't clear rules on how to distance after that to keep everyone there safe. But we didn't feel any safer after yeah. that. Um, we didn't feel any more secure after that, you know, because mm -hmm. we still had to go, because I'm, I'm not sure what department this person worked in, but if they worked in the deli department and you came to the store down and cleaned the deli department, we still have to contact our, our protocol to, to clock in. We have to touch the, they, it, is, it, it reads your fingerprint. So we all have to touch this this uh, time clock to clock in. Wow. So yeah. you're, cleaning the, you're cleaning the deli department, but if this person buys groceries or this person stops at a register, you know, we have touch screens, that you scan, you have to touch the time clock, you know, we're still exposed. Yeah. So no one felt any safer. Fortunate for, for us in service departments, we have to be extra sanitary. So washing your hands and using sanitizer and all of that stuff is a requirement. 
and service departments. Right. So as far as exposure, I, w- I wasn't too concerned about myself, but for my coworkers that were a little bit older or a little bit unhealthy, you know, yeah. had some of the things that they said um, to, that would be concerning, those were who I was I was worried about. And, and I'm sure they were even more worried about it. And, and, and several of them self-quarantined and, and they took the loss because they were afraid. And Juan says that a lot of them made those calls really early on, before Kroger granted paid time off for sick workers. Before that, they were required to use vacation time. Now, Kroger offers 14 days of paid leave for workers who test positive for COVID or who have verified symptoms. And as of July 2nd, Kroger's requiring everyone in its stores to wear a mask. We reached out to them, but they didn't respond to requests for comment on their policies this summer. Juan's union is called the United Food and Commercial Worker International Union, or UCFW, and it's won some rights for its workers in Indiana's Local 700 chapter. They got members more distance between workstations in places where that was possible, and social distance in break rooms. And they're still fighting. They're working at the state level and across the country to give better benefits to workers on the front lines, and to limit their exposure to the virus. Since Juan's a union steward, he advocates for his coworkers, and he makes sure they feel safe at work. But for him, being in union leadership goes even deeper than that. As an autistic person, advocacy means a lot to him. I used to be the, the type of person that people fought for because, you know, being autistic is hard. I have what's called pervasive developmental disorder, which is a social anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so it was hard for me to step out there. It was hard for me to say anything. So people stepped, people stood up for me. And mm-hmm. as I got older and I started having children, it was, it, I, I tell my children all the, all the time, do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So in order for me to say that, I have to live that. A part of watching people get mistreated and knowing what our rights were, um, I decided to step up and be a union steward because I, I've had store managers that took advantage of people not knowing what our contract says. Yeah. So um, I felt it was only fair to help them and show them that they don't have to take a bunch of crap from someone because they don't know what they can and cannot do. You want what's best for those that don't, that can't. And of course, the summer hasn't just been about the virus. It's also been about protests in over 350 cities, and many, including Indy, involving violent clashes with police. Juan's watching it all. Okay, so I am a 47-year-old black male. Mm -hmm. So these last few months have been an extra lot. And understanding and recognizing the significance of Juneteenth compared to the 4th of July, mm-hmm. which is considered Independence Day. And knowing the, the history of Juneteenth and the 4th of July, 
it has been a lot to um, discern and to um, not be probably as vocal as I probably should be because I am an American. I was born here. I was raised here. My parents were born here and raised here. My grandparents were born here and raised here. So we are Americans and I could probably go six or seven generations. But I also recognize that as an African-American, which I use the term loosely because I was born here, that as an American, we celebrate the 4th of July as Independence Day for Americans. But recognizing my history, I, I, I celebrated Juneteenth as Independence Day for Africans slash Americans. As far as heritage goes, there's a lineage that you you always have to, they, they say if you don't, what is it, learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it or something yes. like that or yeah. something like that. It's, 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 I've always taught my children to learn from mistakes. They don't have to be your mistakes for you to learn from them. And to also be proud of who you are. Um, and if you do it because it's the right thing, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot from this, these, this, this, the COVID pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and and this it, it's it's a lot of information because we we're at a point in time where information is flooded, flooded through every it's flooded. There's a lot of information out there, and you have to do a lot of research to find out what's true and what's not. Yeah, and because all we've had is time because because of COVID nineteen. We've had a lot of time to hear a lot of things and learn a lot of stuff. And I I hate that it had to come to COVID-19 for us to realize all the things that we take for granted, mm-hmm. like the ability to go out and do things and enjoy people. That's one of the things that I miss the most is I'm, I, I'm, I'm autistic, but I love with my relationships. Yeah. I, I gain a lot from being around people a lot. Yeah. All I've had was my coworkers for the last umpteen months. I haven't seen friends, I haven't seen family because I have a lot of family that were high risk. Yeah. So, uh, you know, talking on the phone is good, but being around a person that you like being around is a lot better. And I've, I've tried to teach my children to to always enjoy the time that you have because it's limited. This year at Kroger has made me more tired than I've ever been in my life. I've worked more hours than I've ever worked in my life because if if you're trained to do a job and there are a few, there are, there are a lot of butchers left. There's a lot of people that work in meat shops, but there are not a lot of butchers left. There's not a lot of people that can pull a cow and cut it in half and seam it down and get all the cuts that you like, T-bones, New York strips, ribeyes, filet mignon. Not a lot of us left. So when you're limited on how many people can do a job and then COVID hits and those people, a few of those people get self-quarantined, then you're, if you're not self-quarantined, then all of that falls on you. And that's what happened to me. Uh, my boss is high risk. 
He has he's diabetic, and his doctor made him quarantine. So the only other person that can cut me like he cuts me is yours truly. So I have worked more hours this year than I've ever worked this far along in any year of my life. He's always thinking and innovating, though. If you call his phone and leave a message, it says you've reached Fat Cakes by Ruff, which is a bakery that specializes in cheesecakes. That's his side business for now, but he says he hopes to eventually move to full-time and leave Kroger behind. You know, when you're a butcher, lifting 70, 80, 90, 100 pound uh, slabs of, of meat for 23 years takes a toll on your body. I love, I love cutting meat, but I enjoy the thrill of making someone's taste buds happy by making dessert. This story originally aired on the podcast Growing in Place, produced and hosted by Violet Barron, with editorial support from Elaine Monahan and the team at Indiana Environmental Reporter. Growing in Place is a production of Indiana University's Center for Rural Engagement. The COVID-19 pandemic has increased the demand for backyard chickens and other birds. For hatcheries, getting newborn chicks to their owner is a race against time. But as Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports, severe weather makes the process more challenging. The peeps of thousands of small, fuzzy, freshly hatched chicks drifts through Cackle Hatchery in Lebanon, Missouri. From February to October, 300,000 eggs are delivered every seven days to the hatchery. Jeff Smith is a third-generation owner of the business and says they have about 200 varieties of birds. And we have some blue Americanas over here and cream leg bars. Now they lay a, a blue egg. And we have some splash Americanas up there. They lay a blue egg. Uh, and then there's a box there that says Buckeyes. Logistics is the name of the game at Cackle Hatchery. They take orders months in advance. About a million eggs are either in incubators or hatchers. It takes approximately three weeks until they hatch. Then, a team of about 100 employees spring into action. They're separating hens from roosters, vaccinating them, and packing them up, all within a couple of hours. Work 24-7 here. Everybody is tapped out on uh, the time and energy that they can put into it. The anatomy of the baby birds helps them survive shipping. Dana Zook is a livestock extension specialist for Oklahoma Cooperative Extension. She says when chicks are about to hatch, they absorb the yolk inside of their egg. Which gives it some energy and some ability to have some energy for about 48 to 72 hours. Smith adds the chicks also have a heightened immune system the first three days that helps them weather extreme temperatures. After that, things can get dicey, which is why they rely on the speedy delivery from the U.S. Postal Service. But because of sub-zero temperatures in February, the post office put an embargo on live shipments. That's caused all sorts of headaches for Smith's business. It's just really hard to manage because we're already, you know, taxed at our limit. And, um, you know, we just don't have automated systems in place that can manage shuffling all these orders around. They do the best they can to help the chicks get to the owners safely. 
Hatchery employees put bedding in the boxes for better insulation and to absorb the moisture. But Smith says it's hard to know what each shipping process will look like. It's very difficult to know how to pack them because we don't know specifically if they're going to be on a truck for two hours or are they going to be on a truck for 12 hours. Despite the hatchery's best efforts, they don't always win the race. Sherida Matlock raises and sells hundreds of chickens in Depew, Oklahoma. She wanted a separate flock for her children. I was like, this will give my kids something to do. Like, they can raise their own birds. They don't have to mess with mine. So she placed an order for 64 chickens in January and received a shipment date for February. Only four chicks survived a trip that would take about four hours in a car. They all got cold and died. That's what happened. Those extreme conditions are why the U.S. Postal Service put a two-week embargo on live animal shipments in February. Mark Inglet is a spokesperson for the Postal Service. Embargoes are pretty rare, he says. When they do happen, it's to protect the animals. We don't want to put them at risk, so during circumstances like that, we won't be accepting them for mailing at those times. But these types of shipments are very common. The Kansas City Regional Center had more than 43,000 live shipments between February and October last year. The embargo was temporary, but for Smith, he had to figure out how to sell thousands of chicks that couldn't be shipped. So he had to have local bargain sales and make countless calls. As for Matlock, she won't be getting her replacement shipment of birds until June. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Find more from our Harvest partners at harvestpublicmedia.org. After a short break, Christina Stella has a story about vaccinations for farm workers. I'm Kate Young. You're listening to Earth Eats. More than half of all farm workers hired in the U.S. are from Mexico. And right now, many are making their way to farms across the country on temporary work visas. Some states are prioritizing these workers in their vaccine rollout plans and are already getting shots into arms. As Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, for many farm workers at this point, vaccines are far more accessible here than in their home countries. White vans carrying small groups of farm workers drive up periodically to the parish hall at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Cobden, Illinois, dropping off groups of men who have recently arrived from Mexico. Many of them will be here until October on temporary agricultural work visas. And on only their third day here, they're getting vaccinated. 34-year-old Jorge Feria just arrived from Oaxaca, Mexico. Moments after receiving his shot, he felt relieved. We have the fortune to come work through a visa and have a government that cares about the people that come to work in the fields. We are very grateful. He says if he had stayed in Mexico, he wouldn't be vaccinated. In fact, he doesn't know anyone in Mexico who has yet gotten the shot. It's a big deal for many of these workers. Farm workers have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. According to researchers at Purdue University, in the U.S. alone, it's estimated that hundreds of thousands of agricultural workers have tested positive for the virus and thousands have died. We let you on. Jose Martinez rolls up the sleeve of his blue tie-dye t-shirt in preparation for the shot. Nothing hard. Nothing hard. 
Martinez, who's originally from Mexico, now lives in Illinois year-round, working as a forklift operator at a farm. He says most of his family also works on farms, and almost all are vaccinated. His parents, though, remain in Mexico. They're not vaccinated yet, because in Mexico, it's really hard to get. Carlos Leonardo Magis Rodriguez teaches medicine at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. The real problem is that we don't have enough vaccines. He says the supply issues mean that most Mexican residents, even healthcare workers, aren't yet vaccinated. Mexico's vaccine distribution plan is age-based, and Magis Rodriguez says he expects 20 to 30-year-olds won't become eligible until maybe next January, meaning many of the farm workers getting their shots in the U.S. now will likely be nearly a full year ahead of their peers back home. Some farm workers say many of their friends and family members are afraid to get vaccinated after hearing false information and conspiracy theories. That the government is against the people and that they're putting the virus in our bodies. Eleazar Chavez also recently arrived from Oaxaca on a work visa. The night before getting vaccinated, he attended an informational session put on by a local health clinic. Carla Gravler ran that Q&A session. She says many workers come in both concerned and unprepared for the vaccine, and it's important to dispel myths right away with accurate information about vaccines. You know, how they work in the body, what kinds of vaccines we have in the market, uh, what kind of vaccines we're going to receive today, and then what to expect after receiving the vaccine. So they know, they can identify, okay, I have fever, I have chills, okay, well, get alarmed. Uh, it's, it's, uh, my body is responding to the vaccine. After some initial hesitation, Grathler says all 22 of the most recently arrived farm workers got their vaccine shots. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. This story was co-reported with Side Effects Public Media's Christine Herman. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Last spring, in the early months of the pandemic, many people took up gardening and growing food. For some, it was a survival response to the food shortages they were seeing in the grocery stores. For some, it was the result of having more time at home to tend to plants. And for others, it was a source of joy and stress relief during a difficult time. Based on the reports of shortages from retail seed companies, it sounds like the increased interest in home gardening continues into this spring planting season. As the seed packets arrive in the mail, many of us are dreaming of our fruitful garden patches and delicious future meals. And when you plant a fruit tree, you can't help but look to the future. Sometimes way in the future. It usually takes years for trees to bear fruit. Orchardists are in it for the long haul. Ann Schertz said she hadn't thought too far ahead when she purchased her fig tree seven years ago. I bought it from May's Greenhouse. She says it was an impulse buy. But I was inspired by the Bloomington Community Orchard when I saw their fig and how big it had grown and that it was producing figs. I thought, I want one of those. <laughs> it's a Chicago fig. Chicago hardy, is that just terminology or... I think you're right. Okay. I thought if it could survive in Chicago, then it would probably do pretty well in Bloomington, Indiana. Ann Schertz lives with her husband, Alan Schertz, in the Bryan Park neighborhood in central Bloomington. We used to be neighbors. 
She's a professional photographer, and he works for the city of Bloomington. They have a lot of other interests, like baking, building, gardening. You might catch Alan gliding across campus on a longboard in the summer, or the two of them walking their little dog, McGee, in the neighborhood. Oh, and you might say they're foodies. So maybe we could do like a levels check. Just tell me what you had for breakfast. Today we had crepes with Gruyere cheese, sautéed mushrooms, spinach, and eggs. It was pretty nice. Yeah, I appreciated it. That is definitely the best. What did you have for breakfast? (laughs) Breakfast that I've ever gotten. (laughs) I invited them on the show to talk about their fig tree. I started by asking them, why figs? I think Anne has always wanted, for, for if we're choosing a plant, Anne would lean towards something that would produce food, and the fig leaves are beautiful, so it's quite pleasant to look at, and it is really fun to eat figs. I think also because it seemed a little exotic, and like something that I never thought we could grow in Indiana. And then once I learned that we could, I was really excited about planting something in my yard that I could look forward to picking every year. I know a couple of other people in town with fig trees, but Ann and Allen's is the biggest and it bears the most fruit. Their house lies along a familiar route through town for me. And the tree is in their side yard, right next to the road. So I pass it almost daily. A few years ago in the winter, I noticed they'd built a sort of circular cage around it with light wire fencing and filled it in with dried leaves. Each year, the cage got bigger as the tree grew. Last year, they had it decorated with Christmas lights. Our neighbor bought us Christmas lights to put on it. thought it looked like a cake. So it looks like a big cake at Christmas. I wanted to learn their secret to fig tree success. I stopped by in the fall when they were getting it ready for winter and asked them to describe the process. When I arrived, they'd already set up a circular cage around the tree using stakes and lightweight wire fencing. They had started to fill it in with dried leaves and were dragging a tarp down the side of the road to a pecan tree on their corner. Sure, we got lucky and we found about somebody who had bagged up about a dozen bags of leaves. My old professor. Giant bags, and so we just sent him an email and asked him (laughs) if, if we could have his leaves that saves time. Yeah. Especially when we're kind of in a pinch, it's cold so early this year. They try to get it covered before the first frost, or at least the first hard freeze. This year's first cold snap came early. Many of the leaves hadn't even fallen off the trees yet, so they were happy for any leaves they could get their hands on. They dragged the tarp to the cage and started dumping in the leaves. What is the method here? Do you just... Uh dump it in there or are you trying to get a specific are you do you want to make sure it's packed dense or I would say packed loose like you can see I have a little void there yeah so I'm not my quality control is quite not up to snuff but uh well you probably want to trap some air in there too yes I think that's right I think the first year we did it we did not use straw Maybe year two or three, we did use straw at the base, and I think that's a good thing. I did not use straw at the base of this one. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But again, I am no expert. We're just, <laughs> we are just winging it, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, we're pretty loose. It's kind of more like a ritual. Yeah. 
It's a ritual that seems to work. What I've noticed from other friends' fig trees is that in our climate, certain varieties of fig trees will survive the winter, but they die back quite a bit, and each spring it takes a while to recover and send out new growth. As a result, the tree doesn't get that much bigger from year to year. That's not the case with Ann and Allen's tree. And so what is the purpose of, the, of putting, putting a cage around it and packing it with leaves? Like, what is your intention with that? What do you think it's doing? I guess we're thinking it's insulating it. I don't really know if it is. Like, we've never studied it or we don't, we don't really know what we're doing, but we just keep doing it each year and it keeps producing. So, Well, I think I read to do that. And that it would help protect it from a hard freeze. Oh, okay. So um, it seems to have worked, though. I mean, every year we get about twice as many figs as we did the year before. And this year we got, I think, somewhere in the ballpark of 200 figs. 200 figs. That's that's quite a bit. And so do they come on all at once, or is it just sort of throughout Gradual, the season? Yeah, totally. gradually. Yeah, it usually gradually. starts out with just one or two. You have to really keep looking for them because the fig's so big now. <laughs> That you really have to get in there and see where the figs are and make sure you don't miss any of those delicious figs on that. So speaking of delicious, what kind of things do you guys like to do with them since you have an abundant harvest? This isn't just like one or two a day. Unfortunately, I think we mainly just eat them raw. I mean, like when they ripen. But we sautéed them. Sautéed them in butter and maple syrup and very lightly because you don't need to use very much because they're already a pretty sweet fruit. So we cut them up and then we'll eat them with pancakes and waffles or on ice cream. Or even yogurt. We've had like a Mm -hmm. fig yogurt parfait, Mm -hmm. a little granola, a little yogurt, a little figgy. And sometimes we've taken them uh, to a friend of ours house and we've put them on pizza too, with goat cheese. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> it's very good. Have you ever preserved them, like, by making jam or, or dried them or anything? We haven't gotten to that point where we have so many that we would do that. We mostly gobble them down just as they are. Do you give them away to friends and neighbors? By all means. We do, because we want other people to experience the fig. They often have never had a fig. Especially a fresh one. Yes, and they or they they thought that like we have neighbors from Israel and they thought that they could only get them in Israel as far as you know growing them in the vicinity where they lived. So that was exciting to them to know that that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. That it is a nice uh, invitational, like a, I don't know what you call it, like fellowship sharing thing. So it's a it's a nice element. As far as that goes, I think. It's actually happened with people driving by, too, because I think people are curious when we're standing by it, wondering what we're doing, because they don't recognize it as Mm -hmm. something that would be bearing fruit. Mm -hmm. So they're curious, and they ask us what we're doing, and we're basically almost getting inside the fig and trying to find the figs in there. So I think some people have never had a fresh fig, and then... I especially think people don't know what a fig tree looks like. So all of that would mean people would be curious. Absolutely. Although there are some people who think, no, I'm not eating that. It looks weird. (laughs) (laughs) But then they slice it open and And it's it's pink. It's gorgeous on the inside. It looks kind of like 
a little ugly fruit on the outside, but you open it up and it's pink and beautiful and delicious. Yeah, so what does the outside look like? Outside color is initially green and then kind of turns brownish, mm-hmm. almost kind of like a purpley bruised color when they're starting to ripen. Do, do you think anybody's no. picking? Because I know that, that your fig is, it's outside of your backyard fence. Yeah. It's it's it very, it's, it's very open to the community. There's many individuals that we've said, by all means, help yourself. But I also think there's kind of like a respect that they're not going to just come and harvest all of them or anything. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like a... You said squirrels. What about deer? I know that this neighborhood is just overrun with deer sometimes. Yeah, there's a lot of deer, but I don't think I've ever seen a deer chomping on the fig. Not for the leaves, not for the fruit. Either they don't like figs or they have not discovered them. Yeah. My guess would be the latter. (laughs) They haven't (laughs) discovered them because they will like them. (laughs) I think for me, mostly, it's just nice to have something out in the yard that grows and then I can pick the food and eat it. I don't feel like I'm being that resourceful, but it's just a fun thing to have in my life to be able to do that. I don't know. I guess what I am learning is to try to grow things that grow easily in Indiana. I have tried to grow lots of fruits that don't necessarily do that well in Indiana. And so to find something that does well, it's pretty much takes care of itself besides covering it up in the winter it just really brings me a lot of joy it's definitely fun i think the fellowship of the tree has been a highlight for me just interacting with neighbors kids grown-ups as is often the case fruit from their fig tree is more than food It's a conversation starter, a connector. After a short break, we have a poem from Ross Gay about the connections that can happen around a fig tree. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Ross Gay is a poet and professor of English at Indiana University in Bloomington. His 2019 release, The Book of Delights, is a collection of essayettes, each focusing on a particular delight he experienced in his everyday life. It's not all hummingbirds, hickories, and rice candy. It gets dark in places. We can only truly know delight by experiencing its opposite, perhaps. Ross Gay has been featured on This American Life, All Things Considered, and Krista Tippett's podcast, On Being. 
Last spring, I asked Ross if he could read from his poetry collection, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, which was a finalist for a National Book Award in 2016 and winner of the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award and the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award. Here's Ross Gay reading in his garden in 2020. To the fig tree on 9th and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up, the racket in the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping, and a woman, yes, with a broom beneath which you are now too the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it, and she has a hose, too, and so works hard rinsing and scrubbing the walk, lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip, and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air, and she says, Take as much as you can. Help me, please. So I load my pockets and mouth, and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more. But I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low-slung branch, and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing. Do you see it? And I am tall, and so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to, smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach, like there was a baby in there. It was hot. His head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body, where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night, and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree or the immigrants. There is a way... The fig tree grows in groves. It wants, it seems, to hold us. Yes, I am anthropomorphizing, goddammit. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most, which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree, at the corner of Christian and Knight, strangers maybe never again. That was Ross Gay reading To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian from his 2015 release, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. His latest release is a book-length poem called Beholding. Ross Gay has collaborated with musicians such as Bonnie Vare 
and Angel Bot Dawood for a spoken word album available in early April. We have more information on our website, eartheats.org. the average American farmer is going gray. With many farmers eyeing retirement, a third of U.S. farmland is expected to change hands by 2035. Plenty of young people are eager to break into agriculture, but as Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, some say they face a barrier their parents didn't. Student loan debt. March will be a busy month for Kate Cahey, a first-generation farmer selling produce, herbs, and native plants in southwest Iowa. She'll spend hours planting in the tiny greenhouse on her front lawn, flanked by vast cornfields. Oh my gosh, from now until the end of May, I will be in here. But if all goes according to plan, they'll finish growing in her biggest investment yet. Fingers crossed, we don't know what's going to happen with like the mud puddle (laughs) nature of... March and April, but the new greenhouse will be up and I'll be able to move all of the larger seedlings into there. Without her landlord's permission, scaling up wouldn't be possible. Kehi has about $60,000 in student loan debt and can't afford farmland. She says that's just one way the loans loom over her life. In agriculture, she says land ownership means security. Losing the lease could end her career. This area where the buildings are, this is probably about two acres, but just like where all these buildings are. So this is probably like $20,000 that we're looking at right now. Oh, way more. The National Young Farmers Coalition says Kehi's story is a common one, highlighting some of the biggest challenges facing first-generation farmers today. Access to land and money. Members have consistently ranked student debt as a top three barrier to getting both. A 2017 survey by the nonprofit found that more than 80 percent had college degrees, but fewer than half owned all of their land. Beginning farmers of color can face steeper barriers. Non-white students in the U.S. are more likely to take on more student debt and struggle to repay it. 
Sarah Campbell at the USDA's National Beginning Farmer and Rancher Program says lingering debt can complicate applying for farm loans. It's certainly a challenge because you're already like carrying debt and then seeking to get into a business that can be very expensive to capitalize. She helps farmers access government loans that are meant to be easier to get and pay off than those from private lenders. They have really low interest rates, and the USDA doesn't use common factors, like a credit score, to pick who gets money. While student loan debt may not disqualify somebody, she says it can be a hurdle for their business plan. Folks who are carrying student debt, it might be a pretty significant monthly payment. And so they've got to figure out how to come up with that, and that will like factor into their, their capacity to repay. Melanie Kirby, who descends from the Torticus Pueblo tribe in New Mexico, says her $100,000 debt and a lack of generational wealth made her feel like she couldn't apply to buy the land she needed to expand her queen bee business, which she started in 2004. For a long time, I, I almost felt slightly like a failure, that my farm couldn't make more money. And yet we sell out of everything we can produce every year. Fifteen years later, Kirby still doesn't have any retirement savings. Many farmers often sell off their land to fund their retirement. She says for debt-strapped farmers, especially Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, the math often feels simple. No land, no assets. No assets, no future in the industry. They can't even dream or envision or feel that some of those things are within reach because they're struggling with day-to-day survival. It breaks my heart because we're in our ancestral homelands, and yet we're displaced. 98% of U.S. farmland is owned by white farmers. With talk of possibly canceling some student debt buzzing around Washington, Kirby thinks any loan forgiveness for young farmers would likely help diversify U.S. agriculture. I want to have something that I can offer my children, you know, whether they want to stick with it or they can chop it up and sell it off and and do whatever they want to do. But I don't want to hand them crap on a platter. She says student loan debt is just one of the many obstacles facing young producers. But with so much land coming up for grabs soon, Kirby says the government is missing an opportunity to invest in the next generation of farmers. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media reports on food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to follow Earth Eats on social media at Earth Eats and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We've got some fun recipe videos from my home kitchen. Just search for Earth Eats on YouTube and subscribe. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Violet Barron and everyone at the IU Center for Rural Engagement, to Anne and Alan Schertz, and to Ross Gay. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.